Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Stockwell service. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit christchurchlondon.org. Now, before Ellen comes up to preach, um, I'm going to read the verses that we'll be diving into this morning, which come from Luke 11, 29 to 32. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Welcome, Alain. Oh, (laughs) thank you. Okay, let me start this. Um, This is quite the passage, isn't it? (laughs) Bit of a step up from my last talk on the parable of the soils. Thank you, Helen. Um, for those who don't know me, my name is Hélène and I've been coming to the Stockwell service pretty much since it started. Um, I'm married to Tom and we've got a little boy called Jesse. So I would love to talk to you more if I haven't talked to you before. <laughs> There's quite a lot for us to go through today and to unpack, so I'm just going to pray before we do. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you because um, you can help us understand it. We thank you because you speak to us today through it. And I pray you'd open our hearts, you'd open our eyes, that our minds would be focused on what you want to share with us this morning. Amen. Okay, let's start. So I'm going to start by looking at the different characters we see in this passage um, so we can better understand the meaning of what Jesus is trying to say to this crowd. And then I'm going to look at why we might ask for a sign And hopefully, if you're still with me, um, how we might relate to this story and what our faith is based on. Does that sound good? Great. So the context and the people. There's a few people that we need to be familiar with, I think, in order to understand this passage. Um, Jesus has been making his way up to Jerusalem. And we assume from the beginning of this passage that the crowd who's been following Jesus has been asking him to do a lot. And I think it's fair to say that Jesus wasn't best pleased about that. And so he proceeds to give two case studies from the Old Testament, which the crowd and especially the religious leader of the time would have been very familiar with. And I think Jesus was trying to show them that on top of all the recent miracles that he'd been doing, you know, I'm talking casting out demons, healing the sick, forgiving sins, raising people from the dead, etc. There were also signs in the Old Testament and the generation that came before as to who Jesus was and is. So there's two people he mentions here. It's Jonah and the Queen of the South, also called the Queen of Sheba. So we'll start with Jonah. It says in the passage, The generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also would the Son of Man be to this generation. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Quick show of hand, who's familiar with Jonah's story here? Yeah, most of you. So very briefly, Jonah is someone we come across in the Old Testament. 
God asked him to go and speak to the people of Nineveh to repent. Um, it's interesting to note that the crowd who was following Jesus did not have a great relationship with the Ninevites. They did not like them because Nineveh used to be the capital of the Assyrian Empire and they ended up laying siege around Jerusalem. It was also a city full of pagans and not very nice people. So Jonah was like, no, thank you, Jesus, or Lord, <laughs> and just fled, went onto a boat. Long story short, a storm came out. The only way to stop the storm was to throw Jonah overboard. He was eaten by a big fish, stayed there for three days and three nights before being spat out. This is probably quite a lot to take in in itself, and I think there's a great uh, talk on our website about Jonah, so I'd recommend checking it out. But after that, Jonah ended up going to Nineveh, and probably against his expectations, the people actually repented on the back of what he said. They changed their lives on the back of Jonah's word. So what is the parallel that Jesus is making here? What is this sign of Jonah? In the Gospel of Matthew, we have a bit more detail, and it says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus is referring to what is what's going to happen soon. I think it was actually three days after he said this, his death and resurrection. And that is the ultimate sign of his identity as the Son of God. Jesus is so much greater than Jonah. Jonah didn't care about the people of Nineveh. He didn't want to go there. He didn't want to talk to them. Yet Jesus cares so much for all of us here that he decided to give up his life so we could live. And I think the other reference that we have in this passage is the fact that salvation is here for all. Uh, the people of Nineveh were not Jews, but yet they will be there at the end and they will rise up with Jesus. And so this probably would have sat a bit oddly as well with the crowd who thought it's all about us. I'm going to wrap up this session se section with a quote from Tim Keller. And he says, The miraculous sign of Jonah isn't so much a display of power as an astonishing display of weakness. Jesus laid aside his divine glory and prerogatives and humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. Just as Jonah was cast into the water to save the sailors from the wrath of God, so Jesus would be cast into death to bear all our punishment and the sins we deserve to save us. And just as Jonah came back from the dead, so Jesus was raised for our justification. That is the sign of Jonah. What a God that is. Let's have a look at the second person that's mentioned here. That is the Queen of Sheba, or the Queen of South, the South. It says, um, she will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and also condemn them. For she came from the end of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. So the Queen of the South of Sheba is believed to have been from Yemen. She wasn't a Jewish queen, she was a Gentile queen. And you can read more about her interaction with King Solomon in 1 King 10. Um, and in there it says, When she heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. I love the fact that she had hard questions ready for Solomon, who was, you know, renowned for his wisdom. Um, but more than that, she traveled a really, really long way to get those answers pretty much based on rumors of what she heard. So there's a map, I think, on the next slide, and she basically traveled, traveled 1,500 miles through desert 
as a woman on a camel. I feel like that was a pretty big deal. Um, and that's an amazing example of faith. She found the answers that she wanted. She recognized where Solomon's wisdom came from, and she praised the God of Israel for it. But again, Solomon was only human, full of faults. Jesus is so much better. And she believed, based on this wisdom of Solomon, Solomon so how much more do we have? It also talks about the judgment. Um, it says both the people on Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba will be there in judging this generation. So there's a lot I could say around this, um, but I'm going to focus on a few points. So Jesus calls the generation that he's speaking to an evil generation. Why do we think that is? I felt like Jesus was a bit, uh, hello, like, what else do you need for me to, for you to believe that I am who I say I am? I mean, they were on earth at the same time as Jesus. I would have called them the blessed generation, because how awesome would that have been? But they're not satisfied with what they're seeing. They want more. And so Jesus is saying, well, I've actually already given you so, so much. There's not going to be any bigger sign than the sign of Jonah which is Jesus' death and resurrection. And he's talking to, I think, the religious leaders as well, who were very, or thought of themselves, very highly, very righteous people. And I feel, probably thought they would be the ones judging everyone else at the end. Um, and Jesus is saying, no, no, you're going to be judged by the people of Nineveh and the Queen of South, the South. Does that work? Yep. Um, they probably thought, why is Jesus going on about him? But the fact is that the Queen of the South and the people of Nineveh both repented and changed their lives around um, after Jonah talked to them. And the Queen of the South came based on what she heard about Solomon's wisdom. And the crowd following Jesus had access to so much more information than these guys, didn't they? The other part of this passage um, is a picture of what's to come, right? Jesus' death and resurrection, not only for the Jews, but for everyone. And the crowd's unbelief, I think, was in comparison to these examples, a big lack of faith. Their hearts were hard and their eyes were closed. And there's actually a few other references in the New Testament where Jesus tells that the chosen generation um, will be judged more harshly than wicked people or people from places like Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think it's almost like the most information or evidence you have been given, the more you'll have to account for. And the other aspect I think needs underlying here is um, when we say the Queen of the South or the people of Nineveh will be rising, that implies that there is eternal life and that there is more to life than what's here on this earth. This life isn't everything there is, and it's nothing in comparison to what is to come if Jesus is your Savior and Lord. One day he will come back and we will rise together with everyone else who repented and believed from all times and give account of what we have done and said to a loving and merciful God. And it's the hope of what is to come that I really like, the reunion of the people we miss dearly on this earth. I was talking about this with my friend Ali the other day and just how sweet it's going to be to be reunited with them. So let the truth of resurrection be on our minds as we go through this life.
let's live with an eternal perspective and make decisions accordingly. You're still with me? <laughs> okay. The, the final bit I want to focus on in my talk is talking and looking at signs and miracles and where we stand today. What is a sign? Is it the same thing as a miracle? Do signs and miracles still exist today? Is Jesus saying there's not going to be any more signs after his death and resurrection? The definition of a sign is um, something that points to outside of itself. Jesus being the ultimate sign to God. And most of the signs in the Old Testament were a reminder of God's covenant, his promises to his people. But now we have Jesus and we have the Holy Spirit. And so whilst I agree that we won't have a better sign than Jesus' death and resurrection, I do believe that through his spirit we can point people to who Jesus is through miracles. Who here has ever asked for a sign? Yeah. <laughs> you might know the story of Gideon in the Old Testament. God asked him to save the people of Israel by leading them uh, in a fight against the Midianites. But he wasn't sure that he was the right man for it. So he asked God for a sign and he said, he put out this fleece and said, you know, if it's wet in the morning and everything around is dry, like, I'll know I'm the right person. And that happened. And then it's like, okay, let's do it the other way around. If it's dry and everything around is wet, then I'll know and I'll go. And God patiently answered it. So naturally, when I needed a, you know, clarity on the decision in my love life, I asked God for the same thing. <laughs> I put my clothes in a basket by the bed, and I was like, if they were in the morning, I'm going to marry this person. <laughs> Kept checking in the night, you know, clothes were still dry. <laughs> I didn't end up marrying that person, so maybe that was the sign. But, um, you know, yeah. I don't think it's wrong to ask for signs. And I think, but I do think the attitude of our hearts and our posture when doing so matters. And I feel that asking for a sign or a miracle or a word from God as a confirmation about something that God has already called us to is different to asking for a sign for a self-serving purpose or to confirm something we've already been given. In comparison to the generations before, and especially the generation Jesus was talking to, you know, we've been given access to the Bible, we have the Holy Spirit that lives in us, and we have access to so many resources. And especially through the Holy Spirit, we're given power and discernment. And so when miracles happen, they become a powerful testimony to show others who God is, that he is alive, that he is powerful, but also a really nice picture of what is to come. I don't know if anyone's read this book called Scattered Servants by Alan Scott. Um, it's a great book, and it just has stories after stories after stories of supernatural encounters, of heaven coming to earth and ordinary people doing extraordinary things through their obedience to God and the prompting of the Spirit. I've put another Tim Keller quote in here because, you know, he's a great, well, he was a great man. Um, about miracles in his book, The Reason for God, he says, Miracles lead not simply to cognitive or intellectual belief, but to worship, to awe and wonder. Jesus' miracles in particular were never magic tricks designed only to impress and coerce. Instead, he used miraculous power to heal the sick, feed the hungry, raise the dead. Why? We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, 
but also a wonderful foretaste of what is going, what he is going to do with that power. And I love the end bit. Jesus' miracles are not only a challenge to our mind, but a promise to our heart that the world we all want is coming. That's beautiful. And the Bible says we're ambassadors of a different kingdom on this earth. So let us keep our eyes on Jesus and our ears open to his spirit to bring more of his kingdom to this earth. What is your faith based on? Is it based on observation or revelation? I think the potential trap or issues um, with signs or miracles is if they are the basis of your faith, then your faith is going to be based on observation. And faith dependent on signs will generally be short-lived because it will grow depending on signs to keep coming in order to grow. And that doesn't always happen. But if it's based on the revelation of Jesus dying for you and his spirit guiding your life, then they will be able to weather and sustain storms and grow rooted in who Jesus is and not just what he can do. So how do we compare to the generation that was alive at the same time as Jesus? I don't know what your reaction was when, I, when Faith read this passage originally, whether you identified with that crowd or you thought, no, I'm much better than them, you know. <laughs> um, thousands of people saw Christ continually when he was on earth, and yet they carried on with their sins. What about us? Have we repented? Do we continue to repent after hearing what Jesus has done for us? Have we forsaken what we knew or know to follow him? Or do we continue living the way we did before we encountered Jesus? Are our eyes and our hearts open to who Jesus is and what he is doing around us? Are we asking for things that have already been given to us? Imagine how much bigger our response to Jesus should be than that of the people on Nineveh or the Queen of the South who never even got to meet Jesus or hear of all he had done or have the Spirit with them. I was pondering how often we probably miss Jesus when he might be right in front of us or don't take the time to listen or think we need more than what we've already been given. And I think especially in our current times and geopolitical climate, it's really easy to miss Jesus or to want more to prove that he is still in control. Are we too preoccupied for what really matters? Do we take time to seek God, to grow in discipleship, to invest in community? Isn't it a bit mad that people who lived at the same time as Jesus yet didn't believe in him? But in a way, I feel with everything we have access to today, a lot of people still don't believe. So are we very different? Um, maybe the band can come back up. I've got a few more questions for us to think about. If Jesus was on earth today, would you recognize him? How serious are you about seeking God? Would you travel from the end of the earth and drop everything you have? Is your heart open to what God has put in front of you? What effect does the Bible have on you? Does it grip your heart and lead you to repentance? Jesus has given us the ultimate sign through his death and resurrection that we might have a relationship with him. He showed us that he is who he says he is. And he's left us with his spirit so we might point people to him. He's given us power for miracles. And he's showed us how much he loves us. 
We're going to worship again and then um, Tom will come up and lead us in practicing some of what I've been talking about, about praying for signs, praying for miracles, praying for healing and breakthrough for one another. And so I'd encourage you to be attentive during this time of worship to what the Spirit is putting on your heart, whether it's for you or someone in this room or someone outside of this room. And don't disqualify yourself, you know. Jesus does with what we bring. Um, so yeah, I encourage you to be attentive as we worship. And I'm going to finish with this um, quote from Pastor John Piper. An encouragement, really. As long as we're submitted to the freedom and sovereign goodness of God to do as he pleases, I think we should regularly pray for the miraculous intervention of God. So let's do just that. Let's keep our eyes and our hearts open to what Jesus is already doing around us. Let's be attentive to his spirit. Seize opportunities to pray for one another, for the people around us, and for more glimpses of heaven to come on this earth. Amen.